Well, our Easter series is really a continuation of our Revive Us series, as this Palm Sunday morning we ask God to revive us in serving, to revive us in serving. Jesus is the perfect subject to look at in terms of service, marked by love and humility. He's God's eternal king who entered the gates of his own city, not to be served, but to serve his people, to suffer bleed and die at the hands of those he came to save so that the elect from every nation would go free. When I think of a dirty job, a dirty but necessary job, I often think of cleaning toilets. But that can't compare, can it, to the dirty job of cleaning up our sin. Not even close. In ancient Near East cultures like Jerusalem and Jesus' day, the idea of a dirty job was washing someone else's feet. People would not allow anyone but the lowliest of slaves to wash their feet because it was such a demeaning task. For a king to wash the dirty feet of his servants would be unthinkable. And yet, in John chapter 13, that's exactly what Jesus does as he washes the feet of his disciples. Jesus turns this task that his disciples would refuse to do into a far deeper task of humble, sacrificial, willing service that causes all the world to stop and take notice. Our king's humility, love, and willing sacrifice to serve sinners on the cross is beautiful and inspiring. And we want to be like him. And we want to serve like that. Because following our king means serving our king and his people the way he served us. And so let's look at John chapter 13 this morning. Let me give you just some quick context for where we're at in the gospel of John. John gives us an outline of his gospel all the way back in John chapter 1 verses 11 and 12. He writes, he came to his own, that's Jesus, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And so in the first 12 chapters of John's gospel, Jesus comes to his own. He's doing all of these miracles that evidence that he is their Messiah. He preaches the good news. He heals the sick. He gives sight to the blind. He feeds the hungry. He raises the dead. And yet they did not receive him. Then there's this transition in John chapter 13 for the second half of the book, where Jesus turns now to his disciples, to those who did receive him and believed in his name and would become children of God. And so in chapter 13, we see Jesus privately revealing to his disciples that he is the promised Messiah, and we see his disciples responding to Jesus. Jesus shows them how he has loved them and then instructs them in how they are to love one another so that the whole world would know the love of God through Christ's love displayed through the church, his disciples. Chapters 13 to 17 in John explain the significance of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and the account of his death, burial, and resurrection is in verses 18 to 20. We'll be looking at John chapter 20 next Sunday on Resurrection Sunday. So beginning here in John chapter 13, verse 1, everything is now pointing forward, moving forward to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Let me begin by reading the first 30 verses of John chapter 13. 
Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that, he, that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from the supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but he is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, and that was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who has sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it takes place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me, the one who re- and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, "Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me." The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter mentioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are doing, go and do quickly. Now no one at table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give some to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Let me stop there. So verse 1 is a marker, telling us that Jesus is focusing on his, his own disciples, and that he will love them to the end. And so how does he love his disciples to the end? Well, he loves them by sacrificing himself for them, on the cross, the end of his life, the end of John's gospel. That's where we're going. And it's Thursday. It's Monday, Thursday, just before Jesus and his disciples eat the Passover meal, and Jesus knows his hour has come. That is, the divinely appointed time for Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice on the cross. That hour is at hand. This is the purpose that King Jesus has come to fulfill. 
He came to serve his people as a sacrifice for their sin. In John chapter 15, verse 13, Jesus will say, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. So Jesus came to love his own and to lay down his life to serve their greatest need, the salvation of their souls. You may be thinking, well, doesn't Jesus love everybody? Not just the disciples? Well, after all, John 3.16, John writes, For God so loved the world, yes. God has a providential love for all of his creation, including all of the people in it. But God has a particular love for his people. He has a particular saving love for his elect, whom he has chosen out of the world. You need to understand this, so let me give you a quick illustration. I think it will help you. As a pastor, as your pastor, I have a form of love and care and concern for all of the women in the church. It's right, and I should. But I have a special and a particular love for my wife. It's a love that is reserved just for her and no one else. By covenant, by our marriage covenant, And this is how Christ loves his bride, the church, by a covenant, the new covenant. That's why in reference to Jesus' appointed hour on the cross, John says that Jesus loved his own, but he will love them to the end. He will love them to the end. Jesus is a king who has come in loving service to his people. And then in verse 2, we have a different picture, not a servant, but a betrayer. And I'd like to deal with Judas Iscariot all at once here. The main event in this passage is Jesus washing the disciples' feet. But before Jesus rises from the table, John introduces Judas Iscariot, the betrayer. Look at verse 2. During the supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, so we've got him introduced here. So Judas is present, and he has already purposed in his heart to betray Judas Excuse me, Jesus. Let's not be confused, though. The devil has tempted Judas, but Judas is completely responsible for his actions. Judas chose to betray Jesus, and he did it. Skip ahead to verse 11. We see him mentioned again. For he knew, Jesus knew, who was to betray him, and that's why he said, not all of you are clean. Jesus knows everything that's happening here. He knows that he will be betrayed. By the way, that doesn't make betrayal any less painful. And Jesus knows it's Judas who will betray him. And he knows one more thing. Unlike Peter and the disciples, as we'll see in a moment, Judas is not clean. Judas has no share in Jesus' kingdom. Look ahead to verse 18, which begins the the longest section on Judas. Jesus says, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Judas is not chosen of God. He's still a child of his father, the devil. That's why he was susceptible to the devil's influence in his heart. And we see the sovereignty of God even in Judas' betrayal of Jesus. As Jesus quotes Psalm 41, verse 9, he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. It's a prophecy that's fulfilled here. Judas' betrayal is the fulfillment of prophecy, and God will use this evil event, this evil act, for his good purposes of salvation. But I want you to see the loving heart and serving heart of Jesus right here in the final interactions with this follower, Judas Iscariot. 
Before we even get to the foot washing, look at the heart of Jesus. I think two things we should see. Here's the first. In verse 21, Jesus announces that one of the twelve will betray him, and this throws the disciples into confusion, wondering which one of them it could possibly be who would do such an evil thing. And in verse 26, Jesus says, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. Now, Jesus' words are a pretty clear reference to Ruth chapter 2, verse 14. Ruth chapter 2, verse 14 reads this way. At mealtime, Boaz said to Ruth, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel into the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. So what's happening back here in the book of Ruth in the Old Testament? Well, Boaz, who you'll remember is a kinsman redeemer, he has a redeeming quality to him and to what he does. He welcomes Ruth, who's a vulnerable woman, from a foreign culture to his household. He offers her the same food and protection that all of his other servants in the household have. Okay, so what's happening back here in John chapter 13, verse 26? Don't you see? Jesus is offering his hospitality to Judas Iscariot one final time. But we see in 27 that Judas is a servant of Satan. He's not a servant of Jesus. And Judas dismisses himself from the lighted room into the darkness of night. I think this highlights the very loving heart of Jesus. How are you doing with loving your enemies? Jesus shows us right here. Here's the second thing we want to see about Jesus' servant's heart. During the supper, knowing his betrayer was present, Judas, Jesus rose from the table and began to wash the disciples' feet. Even Judas feet. Hmm. I wonder if Judas looked Jesus in the eye as he knelt down before him and washed his feet. I'm pretty sure that at that time Jesus looked at Judas's heart. I wonder how Judas felt once his feet were clean and dry, having benefited from Jesus' lowly service. I can't say how Jesus felt, but I know that Jesus knows Judas has made a bad bargain. For 30 pieces of silver, Judas receives a foot washing, but not a soul cleansing, which is what Jesus has come to do for sinners. I think this highlights the sermon heart of Jesus. So let's look at this foot washing picked up in verse chapter 3. Jesus, knowing that his father had given all things to his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from the supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Jesus knows a lot of things, doesn't he? Here in John 13, Jesus knows a lot of things. Jesus knows the father has given all things into his hand. Jesus has all power and authority. Jesus knows that he's come from God in heaven, and more significantly, or more relevant to this time frame, Jesus knows that he's going back to God, his Father in heaven. Jesus knows he's going to be betrayed, and he knows that Judas is the betrayer. Jesus knows that he's on his way to the cross to take away the sins of the world. Why do we need to take note of all this knowing in John chapter 13? 
Because it points to what Jesus has been saying and doing all along in John chapters 1 through 12. John is letting us know that Jesus is God. And you say, well, I know Jesus is God. Why does that matter here? Well, it matters here so that you and I will know with crystal clarity who it is who has kneeled down to wash the disciples' feet. And that what he knows does not stop him from doing it. It is Jesus the King, the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of God, who has all power and authority, who has stripped down to a servant's attire and wrapped a towel around his waist and filled a basin with water. It's Jesus, their Master, their Teacher, their Lord, who's now washing their feet. And this is what we need to understand about washing feet in the ancient Near Eastern cultures. People walked everywhere, and so their feet were always dirty. Can you imagine what they stepped in? Dirty, stinky, and ugly to look at. All the more reason that they had to take care of their feet. But, but who wants to wash another person's feet? It's disgusting, and it's demeaning. And it had this symbolism, this weight, in their culture. It's the lowliest of services you could possibly provide to another human being. And so it was reserved for the lowest of human beings. It was reserved for the lowliest of servants. Even Jews would not let their Jewish slaves wash a guest's foot. They would make the Gentile slaves do it. That's why I don't think the disciples would ever humble themselves to wash Jesus' feet. Not because they thought they were better than Jesus. They certainly didn't. But they thought they were above washing another person's feet. They certainly weren't about to wash one another's feet. No way. And we can understand then why they would be against their master washing their feet. That would be demeaning and disrespectful and dishonoring to Jesus in the culture. So all the disciples are shocked and embarrassed to sit through Jesus washing their feet. But they all do, and no one says anything until Jesus gets to Peter. Now, we can't allow ourselves to make fun of Peter, although it's fun sport, isn't it? Unless we understand that we're making fun of ourselves, because that's what we would be doing. Peter, with good intentions, says, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet, are you? And so Jesus explains that they, they don't understand why he's washing their feet now. There's something symbolic in this act that they will understand later after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And by the way, that's not a long time to wait. It's not a matter of days, but a matter of hours before Jesus will be crucified. But Peter can't wait. And so Peter goes on to prove that Jesus is right. He does not understand why Jesus is washing his feet. No. Lord, you shall never wash my feet. That's what Peter says to his Lord who has all power and authority. Think for a minute. We do that all the time. We do that all the time. See, I think Peter thinks that Jesus is going to thank him for saying no. Peter, Peter's probably rehearsing in his head. 
Jesus saying to him, Peter, you're so good to me. I'm so tired of serving my disciples in this degrading and menial way. It's so unjust for me, the master, to be washing the feet of his disciples. You, You know what, Peter? It's all been a test. And you caught on. I've just been waiting for my favorite disciple to put a stop to this whole charade. Well done, Peter. I think that's what Peter's thinking. And I think we think that too a lot of times. We do that often in our lives, perhaps without realizing it, but but what is it that we do? We, We nobly refuse to let Jesus do what he has come to do in our lives. And that's pride. It's not humility. It's pride. You know, Peter isn't entirely unlike Judas in this way. Jesus wanted a share in Jesus' kingdom, but he wanted Jesus' kingdom to be the restored earthly kingdom of Israel in which he would be rich. He didn't want a Messiah who would sacrifice himself on a Roman cross, and he didn't want salvation from the just wrath of God upon his sins. But Peter did. Peter did want the forgiveness of God and the salvation that comes from God. But he often didn't like the way Jesus was doing it. Sometimes we don't like the way Jesus goes about things. But Peter didn't understand. Peter didn't understand. So Jesus explains some more. Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you won't be my disciple. That changes Peter's tune. Well, a little theological reflection will get us going in any direction, won't it? That changes Peter too. Oh, well, well, then, then Jesus, do all of the purification washing on me. Wash my feet and wash my hands, wash my head. I definitely want to share in your kingdom. And Peter does. Peter's well-intentioned. He has good motivations, albeit they're, they're, they're confused motivations. They're mixed motivations. Because he's still ignorant of Jesus' purpose. You see, Jesus' feet will take him to the cross where he will accomplish the spiritual cleansing that this foot washing is pointing to. Jesus' living illustration is that if you have had a bath, you don't need to wash your whole body again, just as your feet as they get dirty from from walking. And here's Jesus' spiritual meaning Jesus will wash his disciples clean of their unrighteousness by his death on the cross. They will have no need for another spiritual cleansing after that. They'll be clean and they'll be Christ's. But they will need regular spiritual cleansing, the cleansing that's accomplished on the cross, applied to them as they walk in this world. Like a foot washing. And Jesus says, Peter, you've been washed. You've been washed. That is, his disciples will be cleansed by the blood of the Lamb at Calvary's cross. The foot washing displays a spiritual cleansing, and it points to his death on the cross. The the exalted Messiah is the suffering servant who cleanses others. He's the suffering servant from, from Isaiah chapter 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. It's a dirty job 
cleansing people of their sin. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. There's never been a more stunning humility, a more shocking love, a more selfless servant than Jesus. It's not that Jesus, the teacher, was willing to wash their feet that matters, is it? It's that Jesus, the king, would serve his sinful, unrighteous people by sacrificing himself to purchase our ransom on the cross. It was promised all the way back in Isaiah, and Jesus said it would happen. Even in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus declares, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. And in Luke chapter 22, verse 27, Jesus teaches his followers, for who is the greater, one who reclines at table, or one who serves? But I am among you as the one who serves. You see, Jesus is following his own teaching. Let's pick up in verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. You know, I think verse 12 is kind of cool when it says that after he completed his serving, he resumed his rightful place at table. I think there's a lot pictured there. There is great gospel understanding to be gained by Jesus' disciples from what Jesus is doing, and they will understand later, after his death, burial, and resurrection. But there is something else, also of gospel significance, that Jesus wants them to understand now. And it's a call for Jesus' disciples to serve one another. They're supposed to get that meaning right now. Let me summarize what Jesus says. If Jesus is their teacher and Lord, and if Jesus has served them by washing their feet, then they ought to wash one another's feet. That's what he says. And then he emphasizes it. He says it a couple more times. According to verse 15, you know, they can't say they don't understand Jesus' call to serve because Jesus himself just modeled it for them. He says, I've been an example to you. And they can't say they didn't see Jesus set the example. We know all their eyes were on Jesus. They were staring at him as he washed feet. No one could believe what they were seeing and experiencing. So do to one another just as I have done to you. Then in verse 16, Jesus says it more strongly. It's, the, it's, time, uh, it's in the form of a divine command, truly, truly. This is what he says. You are not greater than me, and you are not greater than one another. So, serve each other as I have served you. That's what he says. And then he adds, and you will be blessed. And you will be blessed 
Jesus the blesser says you will be blessed, but let me say out loud what some of you are already thinking. You know, I don't feel very blessed when I have to wash another person's feet. I do feel blessed when I humble myself just a little for some people, but I don't feel very blessed to humble myself to perform the very lowliest of services to the very lowliest of peoples. I don't feel blessed when that happens. And and as I say that, I imagine Jesus looking at me incredulously. As if you can't figure out that humility and sacrifice, sacrificial service don't count much in the world's economy. Haven't you figured that out? But that they are treasure in God's economy. Surely you've figured this out, Scott. Surely you've figured this out, congregation. Scott, don't you know that you will be blessed in your service to Christ? Listen to Jesus in Matthew chapter 25. I'll begin in verse 31. Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And before him will be gathered all the nations. And he will separate people, one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king, King Jesus, will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, and feed you, or thirsty, and give you drink? And when did we see a stranger, and you a stranger, and welcome you, or naked, and clothe you? And when did we say you were sick, or in prison, and visit you? And the king, King Jesus, will answer them, truly, divine pronouncement, I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these my brothers, you did to me. Scott, won't you serve the very same people whom Christ died for on the cross? Won't you love your very own brothers and sisters for whom Christ died? The ones whose sins have been forgiven. They've already been washed clean in the blood of the Lamb. They don't require a whole bath. Won't you just help them to keep their feet clean along the way? See, Jesus is the one who has accomplished forgiveness of sins. Won't you you just walk alongside and encourage and exhort and care enough to do spiritual good to your brothers and sisters? Won't you do that? See, by saving faith in Jesus' sin-atoning death on the cross, your sins are forgiven, and you have been cleansed of all unrighteousness. And Jesus' life-giving resurrection guarantees you eternal life. If you've not come to Jesus for this spiritual cleansing, 
I appeal to you now to come to Jesus and receive the forgiveness of your sins. He's accomplished it for you on the cross. He's offering you salvation and a real relationship with God. To not come to Jesus is to reject him and to reject his offer of salvation for you. When you can have a loving relationship with God by just submitting to him and believing that he's your son and knowing the work that he accomplished on the cross, the cleansing work, come to Jesus. Submit to Jesus who's offering you complete cleansing and a fresh start. And to all who believe in him, who have also received ongoing cleansing for your walk in this life. What does that look like? Well, it looks like what John teaches us in 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. We refer to it often. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confession and repentance in the believer's life bring the application of Jesus' ongoing cleansing. That is like the foot washing. So we can serve him and serve one another with a clean conscience and increasing righteousness. Because Jesus calls us to serve one another. We need to be able to serve one another. Pick up in verse 31 of John chapter 13. When he, that's Judas, had gone out into the night, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I will also say to you, where I am going you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. In verse 30, Jesus, Judas, excuse me, leaves the disciples to betray Jesus, and now the wheels are in motion. The hour is at hand. The time has come for Jesus' arrest, trial, suffering, and crucifixion. Jesus here refers to himself as the Son of Man, And on Good Friday, Jesus will go to the cross as the once-for-all sacrifice for sin. And in his obedience to the Father, to accomplish the redemption of sinful men, Jesus will bring glory to his Father. And his glory will reciprocate, his Father will reciprocate by, by giving glory to his Son. And Jesus applies all of his teaching on humble service in this one commandment to his disciples in verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. Now there are lots of commands in Scripture for us to love. In fact, Jesus summed up the whole law in the two greatest commandments. One, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And two, to love your neighbor as yourself, to love one another in the covenant community as yourself. So what makes this a new commandment? What makes this commandment new? I can think of a couple of things. One, is that it expresses a new covenant that's written in Christ's shed blood on the cross. It's the new command from the new covenant. And two, is that it's based on a new standard. 
which is Christ's willingness to lay down his life, to serve sacrificially. These two things both summarize and put into action Christ's expectation for his disciples, his church, us, to live lives of loving service towards one another. We're the disciples. Love for the brethren is the hallmark of saving faith. And love for the brethren is the tangible evidence of a true church. But how do we do that? How do we love one another as Christ has loved us? How can we love and serve one another as Jesus has loved and served us? And we can think about this both both individually and as a congregation. And I think when we look at Jesus, the key ingredient has to be humility. It has to be humility. We need the humility of Jesus that we find in Philippians chapter 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ who emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And what happened? And he was blessed by God. And he was blessed by God. Therefore, because of his humble service, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So let me ask you on the personal front, how are you doing in practicing humility? It's not an easy question for us to answer, is it? May not be a a question that we want to answer. But it's not easy for us to answer it about ourselves. You see, we need one another. We need help in the pursuit of Christ-like humility. Because we can get much better data, much better feedback from others. See, here's a question that you would like better. Let me ask you, how am I doing in the area of humility? Ah, that's a better question. That's a congregational pleasing question. Here's another one. And in what areas would you like to see me improve? You see, humility is such a broad topic, I think it's helpful to break it down into areas. For example, is your speech humble? When you talk, are you humble? Are you a pleasant person to talk to? Are you interested in what other people have to say? Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. We can tell by your conversation what's in your heart. Is your speech humble? How about your thoughts and actions? Are you humble in the ways that you think about others? You walk up to the church and you see everybody and you interact before and you interact after and then you walk out and everybody's, everybody's around. What's your thought life sound like? Are you humble in the ways that you think about others or, or do you tend to be critical? Are you judgmental of just about everyone, about everything? Are you humble in your actions towards others and your behaviors? I mean, when you you walk into a room, 
Who's the most important person in the room? Is it you? Or might it be those around you? Are you humble in speech and thought and action? See, we need to be humble. We need to be humble. And here's the hard part. Jesus wants us to be consistent in our humility. The good news is that we have the grace of God to be humble in heart, if we would. We can be more humble. We can be more consistently humble. And consistent humility yields genuine love and helpful service to the body of the church. There are actually some pretty easy ways for us to serve one another. I mean, they're really pretty easy. We serve one another when we actively participate in our regular church gatherings. There is a sense in which you're serving one another right now. For worship, for prayer, in home fellowships, in ladies' fellowships, at men's breakfasts, in young adult ministry gatherings. You see, we provide real help and serve one another in, in love in all of those gatherings. Every time we gather... But you thought, oh, I was here to be, I was here to be served at those fellowships. I, I like what I get out of it. Do you know that there's a way that you can, you can give more to others by being there and participating, by being a good brother and sister, and and we can serve one another corporately when we when we volunteer on the master schedule. Not because it's the master schedule. I guess it's the disciples' schedule, but it's the schedule over all things that we that we that we do in service. You know, you can volunteer on the master service schedule to clean the church or to teach children, to make coffee, to greet guests, all ways that we faithfully serve the church as we very gather in various capacities, big ways, small ways, public ways, private ways, we serve and love one another. And why are we to do this, Jesus says in verse 35? By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Imagine Jesus saying it this way to his church. When those outside the church who are not loved by others and who do not love others the way that you love one another, see you loved by one another and loving one another the way I have loved you, then they will know that you are my disciples, that you have a share in my real kingdom, and that you are loved by God. That's how they'll know when they look at us, if we have love for one another. I think that's pretty inspiring. I think that's pretty reviving. Wouldn't it be great to stop right there? Well, I've got more written down, so we're going to go just a little bit further into verse 36. Into verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. 
Well, that seems a little anticlimactic to a sermon intended from a text intended to revive us in our serving and our loving one another. But, but is it? Because isn't this our problem? At least one of them. Aren't we just like Peter? Don't we want everything from Christ now? When Jesus says later, we insist we're willing to die for Christ now. I'll die for you, Jesus. And we do it with good intentions. Peter's doing it with good intentions. But Jesus just points out, you're not ready. You don't understand. Peter will, instead of dying for Christ at this point in time, deny Christ. He'll be heavily pressured by a little slave girl you know Jesus. That very night, moments from now, Peter will deny even knowing Jesus existed. And after Jesus' death, Peter will go back to fishing. We're like that. Even though, like Peter, we have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, saved from God's just wrath upon our sin by Jesus' sin-atoning death on the cross, we're not free from sinning. We are free from the penalty of sin. We are free from the power of sin. Yet we still sin. Even as we serve Jesus our Master. And because of that, we might be like Peter tempted to throw in the towel. To wallow in guilt and shame and good old self-pity. To quit because we feel dirty rather than clean. And that's when Jesus takes up the towel and washes our feet. We confess our sins. We repent of our sins. And he's faithful to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So we can do what? So we can go on serving. Serving Christ. Serving his church. You know, that very night, Peter denies three times. Later, after the resurrection, in John chapter 21, if you want to go there and read, Jesus would restore Peter by asking him three times if he loved him. And three times, Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Do you know what Jesus was doing? He was washing Peter's feet, cleansing him of unrighteousness. And do you know for what purpose Jesus was washing Peter's feet? It was to put Peter back into service. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know I do. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know I do. Feed my lambs. Peter, do you love me? Lord, I do. Go serve. He restored Peter to useful, ongoing service. Jesus was reviving Peter in his serving. 
Let me wrap up with just three closing comments. We love one another by confessing our sins to one another and forgiving one another and helping one another spiritually. Do spiritual good to one another. Wash one another's feet with love that covers over a multitude of sins. In this loving service to one another, the world sees the love of Christ in action in the church and sees that the love of God is real. And though all will not come to love God in the church, no one will come to love God through a church that does not have this love that serves. That's why it's a command. Because God's people will serve one another and love one another as a witness to the love of God to the world around us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, revive us this morning. Humble us in heart. Engender love for one another within us. Even as you engender greater love for Christ. Cause us to sacrifice for one another. To serve one another. To love one another. Lord, help us to witness in this way. That the world would know the love of God the gospel of Christ and have the forgiveness of sins that's promised. This is our prayer in Christ's powerful and humble serving and reigning name. Amen.